Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Hi everyone. I'm sorry the show's a bit late, um, but unfortunately, yet again, life has not only interfered, but thrown me a few curveballs, including an accidental trip down the stairs. But I'm back behind the mic, and before we get going, I'd like to say some thank yous. First, to everyone who has emailed recently, especially with stories about their own family histories, it is lovely to feel that link to the past. Secondly, I want to thank author Andre Eva Bosch for her lovely five-star review. Quote, Chris offers well-researched content in a very listenable way. These podcasts are informative and enjoyable. Thank you. That's so kind of you, Andre. Also, listeners might like to check out Andre's book, Alive Again, which is a powerful tale of a young girl's struggle to break barriers and become a lawyer. I've also had a review from Kalandra94118, USA 5 star, quote, packed with info that isn't always easily available. A great worldview of the Victorian era, end quote. Thank you. Much appreciated. Right. It's been a long road, but it is time to look at the foundations of Victorian colonial South Africa. And the foundation event after the Battle of Grahamstown was the arrival of what were called the 1820s settlers. Frontiers, wars, were clearing the space, but without colonists, there would be no future empire for the Victorians. Let's start with a basic question. Why did the Cape Colony actually need these settlers? We covered part of that last episode. The military authorities wanted settlers to provide manpower and a buffer zone, but there was another aspect to this. The new lands of the Cape needed labour. The first Dutch settlers had an insatiable demand for labour to work the new farms and vineyards. They turned to that old human institution, slavery. The impact of Dutch colonialism on the Cape was catastrophic for the native peoples. In the 17th and 18th centuries, Khoi Khoi and San peoples lost land, food, cattle, and were devastated by smallpox. This in turn devastated political and social structures. The Boers particularly despised the San hunter-gatherers, whose lifestyle was in direct opposition to the Boer quasi-religious reverence for farming and land ownership. We've mentioned slavery before on the podcast, since it helped finance large parts of the Industrial Revolution and also took up a lot of political time for Lord Melbourne, plus it impacted many political and religious movements in the United Kingdom. The abolition of slavery in the British Empire in the 19th century was world-changing. The first time in history a superpower had not only decided not to keep slaves, but to actively demand no other nation should be allowed to trade slaves either. The British decided that an institution that was near universal throughout human history, one that had enriched them immensely, was no longer going to be allowed. The impact on South Africa was clear. It would not be allowed to rely on slave labour, even if it had been acceptable to the early colonists. And that meant labour would be harder to get and it would have to be paid for. Yet in the early days, slavery had been enthusiastically used 
by the Dutch rulers of South Africa. Between 1652 and 1807, 60,000 slaves were imported into the colony. Mortality rates had been huge, so only importation of slaves had kept the population levels up. The treatment of slaves ranged widely, but generally was pretty horrific, with murder, rapes, and brutal beatings being in place. The Dutch East India Company was a for-profit organisation, barely accountable to its own government, and it ruled the Cape Colony with an iron hand. Since Islam was seen as a good religion for slaves, due to its restrictions on alcohol and rebellion, plus the long history of slavery in Islam, the Dutch were more than happy to encourage it amongst the slaves. When the British took over, they were horrified, not by slavery, but by Islam. It was one thing they felt to own humans as property, but it was just immoral to deny the eternal salvation through Christ. Ironically, as noted in an article, a review of slavery, emancipation and abolition in South Africa and the United States, early colonial America, with its Puritan communities, probably had stronger anti-slavery sentiments than early colonial South Africa. Yet part of this seemed to stem from the very weak cultural institutions in South Africa. Unlike early colonial America, there wasn't a growing body of law, religious texts, poetry and community associations, since the Dutch East India Company actively discouraged such things. But when the British arrived, especially the later settlers, this changed enormously, which in turn sparked cultural changes amongst the Boers, who were rapidly creating their own unique identity. The British had initially been more than willing to be part of this slave system, but in 1807 the trade itself was banned. Some American listeners might find it ironic that the abolition of slavery bill 1807 was supported and signed by the supposedly tyrannical King George III. Imagine if the United States had delayed independence by a few more decades, slavery might have died out far more easily. Opposition to the vile institution was growing rapidly. By 1824, there were more than 200 branches the Anti-Slavery Society in Britain and highly organised anti-slavery activists. Crucially, the government was in tune with public opinion. In 1834, the British formally outlawed slavery in the empire and required all slaves to be freed by various dates. In 1837, as the Victorian era started, the British government was clear. Slavery, not just the trade, was over in the empire. It wasn't open for discussion and Lord Melbourne and the young Queen Victoria had to fight a political battle against the foot-draggers and holdouts in the Caribbean. The British government agreed to pay the eye-watering figure of £20 million in compensation just to get the issue over the line. However, the Cape still had a substantial slave population who were supposed to be freed. They had to be integrated into the colony. This was mostly done by the apprenticeship system, where slaves were converted into apprentices and paid a wage, although it differed very little from slavery in practice, certainly at first. So, 
to fix their manpower and labour problem, the settlement scheme was essential. The scheme was boiled down to three key goals. One, to settle the disputed eastern frontier, the Cape of Good Hope, with an agrarian farming community, which would discourage the Corsa and act as a buffer zone between the Corsa and the Boers. Second goal was to increase the English-speaking population and move it from a culturally Dutch to a culturally English model. And yes, I am using English here deliberately, as the government wasn't trying to create a thriving Scottish or Irish culture. Finally, thirdly, to act as a safety valve against revolution at home, especially in the wake of the Peterloo debacle, which you might remember from episode 16. We are lucky to have an immense amount of information about the scheme, like the convict fleets going to the Australian continent. The 1820 settlers were carefully logged. There's an excellent online resource called the 1820 Settlers, and we are lucky to have a huge archive of letters, journals, and there are even books written in the Victorian era by settlers or their children for family history purposes. Naturally, being an important British venture, it was utterly class-ridden from top to bottom, causing many problems. Also, displaying the British natural characteristic for ineptitude, for real planning, the committee identified settlement areas for the scheme, but mostly took evidence from people familiar. The Western Cape, whilst the area marked for settlement, was the Eastern Cape. The main expert for the Eastern Cape testified that the area would be difficult to farm if there were droughts or floods, especially in the Fish River area. But he was predictably ignored. So whatever the flaws in planning and preparedness, the British would have to muddle through and try to solve things on the ground. The scheme was drastically oversubscribed though. Some MPs were shocked that even respectable people were pleading poverty to get a place as the squeezed middle was crushed by raging equality with the super-rich aristocracy maintaining a repressive and rapacious grip on political and economic but home. Some colonists had resorted to begging Lord Bathurst to allow them to join the scheme. Men like Israel Crane, who wrote, quote, Honourable Sir, I hope your honour will pardon my intrusion on your goodness, but in consequence of being a painter, plumber and glazier, and wishing to become a settler at the Cape of Good Hope, and being given to understand you are the gentleman I must apply to, to get instructions from, induces me to address you. So I hope you will do the needful for me, as I can have very good recommendation, honesty and abilities. So by complying with my humble request, we found a lasting obligation in the breast of your humble petitioner, Israel William Crane, MB. I've got a wife and three kids, end quote. Captain Price, who was an adjutant in the militia, asked for details, including where the place was, whilst Thomas Preston wrote, quote, I am now 46 years of age and have, till these few years, been engaged in a very extensive concern in the lead trade, which I was obligated to relinquish through the unfavourable result of some mercantile speculations. In addition to the experience of more than 30 years active employment 
and commercial pursuits, a constant thirst after knowledge and information and a particular attachment to own the mechanical arts, together with the application of science, the practice and improvement, whatever may be useful for the concerns of life, have rendered me, perhaps rather peculiarly, fitted for an undertaking of this description. End quote. There's an almost touching naivety about some of these, who clearly had no idea of the enormity of what was on the table. At least from what I can tell, Thomas Preston didn't make the trip. I haven't found him in the shipping lists. Notice from his letter, he says he was successful till he engaged in mercantile speculation. He goes on to explain his large range of skills, knowledge and experience, yet he was applying for a dangerous settler scheme to become a farmer in a barely settled colony. My suspicion is that Mr Preston went broke making some bad investments and wasn't as in demand as he hoped, so decided to try a desperate punt on a wild adventure. I don't know, of course, but it does make you wonder. The parties themselves were basically three kinds. First were the proprietary or semi-proprietary settler parties. These were made up of a wealthy principal leader plus a set of indentured servants. These were tied to the landowner for three to ten years and were supposed to be given a grant of land on release. This was really the kind of model the government wanted since it reinforced the existing aristocratic and gentry-based social structure of England. Second were the joint stock-style parties who sat below the gentry and made up the bulk of the settlers. They all paid a hefty £10 deposit for adult men and got a land grant, usually around 100 acres. The members of the party were selected by the government and they found themselves attached to a leader who would actually decide how to parcel out the land. So you can imagine the corruption and unpleasantness that went on there. In fact, it wasn't just the government officials or party leaders who were trying it on. Some settlers pretended to be just under 18 to pay less of a deposit. Benjamin White, for instance, performed a miracle by being 22 years old when he applied, but only 18 on the final shipping allocation when it was time to stump up the cash. Other settlers were suddenly married, meaning they only had to pay the cheaper deposit for families rather than as two single people. There was either a lot of love at first sight or some dodgy paperwork. I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn that a lot of people exaggerated their skills and work experience too. The final type of party going out were the independents. They didn't get a specific land grant, so didn't pay a deposit or come under the scheme. Perhaps the most famous of these was led by Major General Charles Colin Campbell. He was born in Chennai, India, but his father was from Campbellton, Argyll, Scotland. This is one of the complexities of empire. Once an empire starts occupying places, its soldiers and administrators have children over there. Then they have to decide who they are and where they are from. Did Charles consider himself Scottish, as that's where his father was from, or Anglo-Indian? because he was born in India and part of the Anglo-Indian community, or British, 
because that's the supposedly overarching identity. Or South African, because that's where he went to settle. I suspect he saw himself as Scottish, since that's where he spent the most time and was the key cultural shaper. Who knows? But for later Victorians, this became an increasingly difficult issue. The descendants of settlers weren't British in the classic sense, nor were they indigenous to the area. Sometimes they married native people. Others tried to be separate, and this often created its own unique culture. After a century or so, these groups were certainly not English, in the way the initial settler generation was, but they were definitely not native either. At a certain point, though, we all accept immigrants have as much right to claim to be part of a country as the native population. But what about in cases where the immigration is not through a managed scheme by a native government, but by an imperial occupation over a century? How long would it take for the South African settlers to be not just transplanted, but to put down roots that can't be pulled up? General Campbell initially offered to take out a 100 volunteer soldiers to form a buffer against the native people, but in the end only took 47 settlers. These included his nine children from his second wife, plus his third wife and their children. He naturally sent his bailiff ahead of him to build his house, because he might be a soldier, but he wasn't going to be doing the heavy lifting. When he arrived in August 1821, the ambitious Scotsman was ready for his new life, which was unfortunate, because he died in 1822. Like all governments, the British promptly took the opportunity to screw someone over by declaring that since the general hadn't managed to get the full 100 people, his wife could only have a portion of the land after all. There were also a few joint stock parties coming out made up of paupers. Since the government scheme involved a deposit, local parishes couldn't simply dump the unemployed on the scheme. A rich sponsor had to be found. The Duke of Newcastle decided the best place for poor people was in a dangerous colony thousands of miles away and duly drummed up some cash from rich friends. Not that it was easy for the settlers to even get to the Cape. The first ships were scheduled to sail in December 1819, so people embarked only for the River Thames in London to freeze, meaning the ships and the passengers were stuck until February 1820. The ships were supposed to sail in pairs, but the vagaries of the ocean meant that they were often separated and then arrived at different times. It was even possible that a ship sailed later than its partner, but arrived before her. This was a problem since the ships were paired under a single navy agent who was supposed to oversee embarkation and disembarkation. Many ships were quite slack, making the HMS Weymouth an exception since she had a Royal Naval captain and kept a log. She was a ship with a past. Built in 1799 and originally a merchant cruiser, she successfully fought off a 36-gun French frigate, then became a transport, then turned privateer before she was officially brought into the Royal Navy. She was part of the convoy that took the Emperor Napoleon to St. Helena in 1815, then ferried antiquities from Libya to the British Museum. The South African voyage 
was her last proper mission before she was turned into a prison ship and then finally a depot supply ship till her breakup in 1865. She must have looked like an antique from a painting in that Victorian navy of steam and iron, but she played her role in building the foundations of the Victorian Empire in South Africa. The Weymouth loaded her settlers on the 16th of December, 1819, but couldn't sail. Her captain worked the crew hard, even in port, and got the settlers involved too. A couple of them died and were sent ashore for burial. Finally, on the 3rd of January, 1820, her pilot came aboard, and despite an initial start of snow and strong winds, the weather broke and she raced out of the port to her pre-departure station. The crew were given their six months' pay in advance, and on the 7th of January, 1820, she upped anchor and sailed. The weather soon turned rough enough for the captain to note it was squalmly, which means the deck was probably changing places with the wall, and the timbers would have been creaking and groaning. Water would have poured in through the seams, and the sailors would have kept one hand on something and made sure their tobacco was well sealed in their oilskin pouches. On the 10th of January, the captain noted laconically, quote, squally, carried away the fore and main top gallant masts, end quote. If it is stormy enough to carry away two of the mast tops, then you know it is one hell of a blow. The voyage continued. Cattle were killed, salted and eaten. Provisions were taken on at various stops. 21 settlers died, mostly children. Sadly, the last death was an infant who died a week before they arrived. Still, at least one of the settlers volunteered to help out as a sailor since the ship was so sort-handed and he enjoyed it so much he signed on for the Royal Navy. Even the voyage at sea was dangerous. The transport ship Abiona, for instance, was carrying 196 settlers when it went down. 49 people survived. That barely covers the horror of what happened. To quote the Edinburgh Advertiser from the 16th of January, 1821, quote, November, about noon, in latitude 4 degrees, 30 min, north and longitude 25 degrees, 30 min west, the Abbey owner unfortunately caught fire and was burnt under circumstances of the most awful and distressing nature. Out of a crew of 21 persons, 141 emigrants, men, women and children, making a total of 161 persons, only 49 are saved. Although I should caution you, numbers on this incident vary a little. A fire had broken out in the stores and rapidly engulfed the ship. They only managed to get three lifeboats off and these were desperately overcrowded with 49 survivors. One eyewitness heard a crewman debating whether it was better to die quickly in the fire or risk the open ocean in a tiny boat. The crewman knew the boats were overcrowded with no real food and no way to reach land. He thought people would end up killing and eating each other. The witness reflected, quote, parental affection never shone with greater luster than on this occasion. Mothers and fathers apparently regardless of themselves, caught up their young children and threw them into the boats. And in one family, Barry's, 
the eight junior are preserved, one a child of 15 months old, while the noble parents, with their eldest son and daughter, are numbered with the dead. Another circumstance of a great soul deserves to be recorded, a Mrs. McLaren, with her husband and four children, upon the flames advancing, retreated into the four channels, when recollecting that her husband was a good swimmer, implored him to save his own life and leave her and their children to the fate that awaited them, as he could not avert it, and her wishes were attended to, end quote. Don't forget, in incidents like this, casualties were unevenly spread across families. It wasn't always as if a whole family was lost and another whole family was saved. For example, a Coverley family had a husband, wife, four sons and one daughter. The father, mother, two of the boys and the daughter were lost, but two of the boys were saved and those boys left as orphaned brothers. Mrs. Thompson, her four sons and one daughter were all lost, but Mr. Thompson was stuck in Glasgow after being delayed in a civil court case and had been unable to join the ship in time. As with every disaster, there were some horrors that happened in full view of the survivors. Quote, One woman, a widow with four children, caught up her youngest daughter, about two years of age, and jumped overboard with her. At that same moment, her eldest daughter, at ten years old, leaped from a different part of the vessel. A question arose among the sailors in the boats which was to be saved. The mother and infant were preferred and the other girl perished. End quote. How would you feel if you were in command of an overloaded lifeboat and given that choice to save a mother and baby or a ten-year-old girl? It was the first mate who had accidentally started the fire by taking a candle out of the safety lantern to get a better view of the stores, particularly a barrel of rum. He was so horrified by what he had done that he refused a place in the boats with the other officers and decided to go down with the ship. His last words were hardly encouraging. Quote, no, he said, I pity those in the boats the most, for with us it will soon be over, but they will soon be eating each other in a few days. End quote. So, it's not that the lifeboats were actually an easy spot to be in as a survivor. Overcrowded, in the vastness of the ocean, they had only ten bacon hams, three pigs, two turkeys, eight pounds of ship's biscuits, and some hammocks, which they could fashion into makeshift sails. That might sound a lot, but between 49 people, it might have to mast days, weeks. They had one broken compass, and the only drinking water was the rainwater they collected in their clothes during the night and squeezed out. By any rational calculation, they were all going to die a very unpleasant death, either of starvation, drowning in a storm, dehydration, or even, with the last survivors, perhaps murdering each other to feast on the corpses. The survivors got lucky, though, and they were spotted by a passing Portuguese merchantman the next day. Not that it must have felt very lucky. If you think that's bad, imagine what they would have felt they learned that this promised land of farms, food and opportunity was actually an unsettled war zone and they were being used as a human shield. 
for the main colony. Because if you think being a colonist was an easy life, then you haven't looked at it closely enough. Life on board these ships was a chaotic menagerie. Some passengers were rowdy drunks, whilst others were the children of aristocrats, replete with pianos. A party of 256 settlers under Lieutenant John Bailey sailed aboard the ship Chapman. They represented the lower class but respectable settlers. Bailey was an influential civil servant and his party was one of the first to be approved. His settlers were mostly considered at least genteel and represented one of the wealthier groups. 600 people had applied to be in his group and he had carefully chosen them. They included three doctors, a lot of carpenters, a wine merchant, a gunsmith, a number of professional farmers, plumbers, military officers, ex-soldiers, silversmiths, tanners, merchants, clerks, shoemakers, who were actually a vital trade, a baker, a bookbinder, and some apothecaries. It was actually, therefore, a properly skilled party of colonists. Each had been promised between 50 and 100 acres of land each, and they had paid the hefty deposit. Naturally, the group included women and children, and also included indentured servants. Looked at as a whole, it was a serious venture, with good prospects of success. They had articles of association, which stated, amongst other things, quote, a village was planned with provision for public amenities and ground was to be cleared at first and houses built by communal labour. Tools and implements and a library were to be held as common stock and the purchase or employment of slaves and the sale of spiritus liquor were strictly forbidden, end quote. Their voyage was surprisingly good. This wasn't a convict voyage to the Australias, it was still a lengthy trip. According to the 1820s settlers' records, Bailey's party, quote, embarked in the Chapman transport at Deptford in company with a small party led by John Carlyle, a last-minute arrangement resulting from the reduction in size of Bailey's party, which was to have occupied the whole ship. Patrick Bagley, a veteran soldier and shoemaker, missed the Chapman sailing and was permitted to join Wilson's party on La Belle Alliance. Instead, the Chapman sailed from Gravesend on the 3rd of December 1819, and on the 9th of December dropped her pilot, as well as several seasick settlers, at the Downs. Six babies were born at sea, and an epidemic of whooping cough on board resulted in the deaths of five children under the age of two and one five-year-old boy. The Chapman anchored in Table Bay on the 17th of March 1820 and was placed under quarantine. However, Sarah Reed was allowed to go on shore to marry the Chapman's captain, John Milbank, a printing press belonging to Edward Roberts, Thomas Stringfellow and Robert Godolton was confiscated by the authorities. The Chapman was the first of the settler ships to anchor in Elgoa Bay on the 10th of April 1820. William Lowe, one of Bailey's servants, did not land with the other settlers, but remained on the ship as a sailor. Another servant, Christopher Franz and Daniel Hockley, W.D. Cowper and John Leonard, were offered employment while at Algoa Bay 
and permitted to leave the party. The remainder of the party was escorted by the Landrost of Utenhaeg, Colonel Koya, to its location at the mouth of the Great Fish River. 64 one-acre lots were measured for a village which was named Koyla Town, later Koylerville. Bailey received a separate grant of land called the Hope, as did Simon Bidolf. In the confined quarters of an emigrant ship during their four months at sea, friction had developed among the settlers and Bailey's authoritarian attitude had created resentment. Soon after locating, permission was given for the party to subdivide into five smaller groups under Bailey, Adams, George Anderson, James Ford and Thomas Wakeford. End quote. So even for a very professional party of colonists, that was a pretty intense voyage, but they could at least thank God or fate that they had arrived alive. In contrast, on the Chapman was a small all-male party led by John Carlyle. They were almost all boys between 13 and 24, and the tickets were paid by their local parish council. I assume they were at least being offloaded to save local ratepayers or to reduce pressure on unemployment rates. They are all listed as servants or labourers. You can rest assured that they had no real equipment or skills for any of this. Predictably enough, they pretty quickly disappeared from history soon after arrival. The Chapman herself wasn't exactly a large and comfortable way to travel. Built in 1777, she was originally an armed merchant for the Honourable East India Company. She served as an armed merchantman in the French Revolutionary Wars, seeing some action, before being a troop transport, a convict transport to the Australian colonies, and most famously, as a transport for the 1820 settlers. She was around 119 foot long and 32 foot wide. So not exactly huge, and with a crew of 50. She would have leaked at her seams with the stench of salt water, rotten food in the bilges, and the creaking of timbers in heavy weather, like a fiend's orchestra. Around 45 to 50 years old, she was already an old ship, and she would labour on, under various owners, until 1853. She got the settlers there, but I doubt any of them would have looked back on the voyage with great fondness. The various failures in the scheme cost the government a huge amount of money and perversely increased military spending. It also simply complicated the situation in the Cape and was partly responsible for further wars during the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, 1860s and 1870s and I think you get the point here. As is often the case, we need to be careful when looking at the high level and saying the scheme was or wasn't a failure. A standard opening in many undergraduate texts is just that it was because the farms were not great, many settlers drifted away and the scheme was too expensive. This oversimplifies an extremely complicated series of events and fails to engage with the huge diversity of people involved and the lives they lived. Just because the government didn't view the scheme as a success in economic terms doesn't mean it was a failure from everyone else's point of view. The scheme did mean the British had a significant population in the Cape. They were nailing down their hold, the Boers were unable to match them, and the local tribes couldn't expel them. The vast global power of the Royal Navy 
meant no other European power would hope to challenge them either. The Bailey party were probably pretty pleased. They got plot number one, a large-sized area with space for 24 farms just on the coast. It was between two beautiful rivers and there was plentiful fishing. They built a small one-room church from hard grey stone. This was a new world compared to England, with strange animals, insects and living conditions for the settlers. But it had trees to clear, and had no roads or other civilization. Even the nearby lighthouse wouldn't be built for 80 years. Every settler was a world away from what was considered the civilised world of the time. And I want to remind listeners, you'd probably find life in the so-called civilised world of the 1820s far tougher than anything you'd find today. There is often a popular view that colonists had an easy life during the empire, being brought tea by uniformed servants, living in splendour as white imperialists, whilst the native populations starved at their door. There's an element of truth to that in certain times and places. The reality for the colonist settlers of early South Africa, though, was a life of back-breaking toil, monotony, pain, the fear of unemployment or starvation, and the possibility of extreme violence. Next time, we will look at settler life and the growth of the Cape Colony up to the 1840s. Before you go, though, I wanted to give you a quick preview of the most recent episode for supporters of the show on Patreon. If you want to listen to the whole Dickens and the murder of Nancy and Oliver Twist special, head on over to Patreon and sign up for as little as £3 a month. That's the cost of a cup of coffee. Okay, we are going to look at a famous literary murder, the brutal slaying of Nancy by Bill Sykes in Oliver Twist. It fits well with the themes of criminality that we've been looking at in the Australian and Tasmanian episodes. It throws up a whole lot of interesting tangents, including Fagan and the criminal he was based on. I need to caution you that some of the material is highly disturbing and that we are sometimes in the realm of speculation, as is often the case with criminal history. For a lot of people, they have a dim recollection of the story of Oliver Twist, perhaps having seen the film, and they vaguely think that Sykes kills Nancy to hurt Oliver, or that she gets in between them somehow. That's not accurate. And the murder itself is interesting, not just because of its place in the plot, but because of some facts historians have worked out about it. Firstly, it's inspiration. Some historians and writers believe Dickens based it on a real-life murder. Secondly, how Dickens himself felt about it, how it fitted into his public readings. Let's start off with the famous passages to do with the murder. Despite my love of character voices, I'm not doing any fake Jewish Fagin accent. He's already a trope, and I'm not encouraging that. It is noticeable that Dickens was criticised by his friends for his portrayal of Fagin, and it must have hit home to a degree, as he used the tag, the Jew, prolifically in the early chapters, but cut back on it as the book went on. He also stopped doing his famous fake Jewish accent during his book readings. He did later, at least, write a counterpoint character to balance out Fagin. 
Let's start with the build-up to the murder itself in the text from Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist. Quote, It was nearly two hours before daybreak, that time which in the autumn of the year may be truly called the dead of night, when the streets are silent and deserted, and even sound appear to slumber, and profligacy and riot have staggered home to dream. It was at this still and silent hour that Fagin sat watching in his old lair, his face so distorted and pale, and eyes so red and bloodshot, that he looked less like a man than some hideous phantom, moist from the grave, worried by an evil spirit. He sat crouching over a cold hearth, wrapped in an old torn coverlet, with his face turned towards a wasting candle that stood upon a table by the side. His right hand was raised to his lips, and, as absorbed in thought, he hit his long black nails. He disclosed among his toothless gums a few such fangs. There should have been a dog's or a rat's. Stretched upon a mattress on the floor lay Noah Claypole, fast asleep. Towards him, the old man sometimes directed his eyes for an instant, then brought them back again to the candle, which, with a long, burnt wick drooping almost double, and hot grease falling down in clots upon the table, plainly showed that his thoughts were busy elsewhere. Indeed they were. Mortification at the overthrow of his notable scheme, hatred of the girl who had dared to polter with strangers, and utter distrust of the sincerity her refusal to yield him up, bitter disappointment at the loss of his revenge on Sykes, the fear of detection and ruin, and death and a fierce, deadly rage, kindled by all. These were the passionate considerations which, following close upon each other, with rapid and ceaseless whirl, shot through the brain of Fagin as every evil thought and blackest purpose lay working at his heart. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria Podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.